Our scripture this morning is John chapter 1, verses 6 through 18. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Thank you, John. Good morning, everybody. That was... Uh, that was Jeff. Appreciate you, Jeff, doing that. Um, he's been in our praise team, been coming probably about a year. Is that right, Jeff? Probably about a year? Half a year? Yeah, well, sorry, man. It's, not, it's been good to know you. I mean, not, not that it's been long or whatever, but anyway, I really appreciate it. Love your voice um, hearing, this, hearing the scripture read this morning. Everybody else doing all right this morning? We're all ready for a nice warm day? Yeah. <laughs> Well, at least got some reaction there, you know? um, so that's great. So <clears throat> this morning, we're going to spend some time. I know the stage here is here. It feels funny. It looks like I can kind of walk out over here into Tom's lap, and uh, and uh, and I'll don't 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 be surprised if I do, Tom. It'll be all right. But uh, so the stage is here. We're setting up early for the kind of the Christmas Eve uh, service, which we all all encourage you to. Be here. We have some folks that are going to be doing uh, guitar specials and and so forth. So it's going to be kind of unique. So I'm trying to find my spot on the stage. So if you see me moving things around, that's that's why. But so I, last week I pretty much with a little bit of the first week when we did the baptisms and child dedication, we started having this series called the God Who Redeems. And if you were to ask me a few weeks ago that when I was thinking about this series, is the way that the series is gone, is that what I would have planned? And I, don't, I would have probably have told you no. Um, it's been kind of an interesting, when you start grabbing a passage and you start thinking of a theme and you start thinking about different things, sometimes that creates in and of itself different, different ideas and directions along the way. And so last week, as we began to look at John, the Gospel of John chapter one, we just looked at those first five verses. And we understood that the God who redeems 
is God. And that's so important in our day and our time and our culture that we understand that was God's people, we serve God. I often use the term, I, I say this a lot, but I, I'm gonna keep saying it because it's not burdensome for me to remind you that we are God's people. And when we understand that we're God's people, we serve an almighty God, an eternal God from everlasting to everlasting, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. For him is the glory and the majesty forever and ever because he and he alone is God, right? And so we as God's people have to understand, and we looked at that last week, and we talked about some of the cultural challenges that we're facing even in light of that truth, that people, even as John was writing, the apostle John, nothing new, 2,000 years, still some of the basic kind of arguments to kind of change the character or who Jesus is. And we kind of looked at that last week. And it's really important for us to kind of understand these things, that when John began to write this gospel, there were some heresies that were taking place at the time that was beginning to, to trouble the believers and causing some of the believers to begin to doubt or turn away from the faith. And so when John wrote this this, this book, and he wrote for other reasons, many other reasons, but he made it very clear for his intent and his purposes. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he said, but these are written. Why does he say, but these are written? If, if I were to show you the previous verse, he said, many other things did Jesus do. But John said, hey, I'm writing these that you may know, that, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in his name, you might have life that you might believe in Christ. So throughout the gospel, John is constantly trying to, to give a witness, if you would, and, and an argumentation, if you would, about who the person of Jesus is. And so when you get into the gospel of John, it is hard not to step away from that because that's the message. Look at Christ. Here is Christ, the Son of God. And he wants you to believe. He wants you to have life, that believing you may have life in Christ, in his name. That when you talk about life, we're talking about eternal life. We're talking about everlasting life that is only found in the belief of Jesus Christ, the revelation of God in his son. And it's important for us to understand that, that, that when we believe, when we embrace, and when we receive Christ in our life, we're accepting him as the revelation of God that he, is, that he has offered his son, Jesus Christ, that we may know him. We acknowledge his divine authority in our lives. We begin to recognize who he is in the way that we live, in the way that we conduct ourselves, because he is God. And God gives us, when we receive Christ, God gives us life to those that would believe, right? And so when we walk into chapter one, I just want to pick up in verse six. We appreciated Jeff reading this passage so well for us. But in chapters, in verse six, is, uh, six through eight of chapter one, he's describing, he's describing John the Baptist. It's interesting. The apostle John, when he writes this, he doesn't ever use his name. And one thing that he does different from the other uh, gospels is when he talks about John the Baptist, he only calls him John. But he's making a reference here to John the Baptist in these, in these verses. And there's a couple of things I think that are important in his argumentation to understand. The first one is there in verse six. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. So I want us to understand this idea that John was commissioned by God. He was sent by God. He had the authority by which he was commissioned to, 
to, to, to expose or to direct that we might know that the light was among us. In verse 7, he goes on. In fact, I'm going to read verses 7 and 8. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And that word witness in the Gospel of John is very important. It's very distinctive in the way that John uses it because he's trying to establish an adequate testimony of the claims of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And as a result of that, those claims that we would receive, we would believe that the readers would hear this truth and receive Christ and believe in Christ. He's establishing those. And it's important to understand that, that when we're talking about here in verse 7, that he came to be a witness, to bear witness about the light, then understand that there's this picture whereby that people are in darkness. And somebody is coming to tell them, in this case, John the Baptist is coming and he's preparing them for the light that's about to come. When he's revealing him, that John is speaking from kind of a human level to awaken people to God's, to their need of God's truth, God's light, God's revelation in Jesus Christ. It's so important too, and I'll, I'll be referring to this a little bit throughout the message, that when we talk about darkness, and we talk about people in darkness. The reality is that when we're in darkness as a result of our own iniquities, our blindness to the holiness and the righteousness of God as a result of our own iniquities. And when John is describing this and he's, and he's trying to awaken people to understand the revelation of God, he's understanding that the light is here and the light is shining into the darkness. And it's important that we receive the light. And the only way you receive the light is through humility. John Baptist, it tells us in the verse 8 that he was not the light, but he was a witness to the light. Many had looked at John and wondered if he was the one, but he's not. In fact, down in verse 15 in this same chapter, making reference to John the Baptist, it said, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, whom I said he come, who comes after me, ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, this is a picture that the Apostle John is recognizing that, that, that he was the one to witness of the light, but Jesus took precedence over John the Baptist. He was superior, he was greater. And it's important to understand that, that he was positionally in, in, of, of importance, but Christ was of greater importance. So when he walks into verse nine, there's a statement there in verse nine, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And there's this picture whereby the incarnation, and we'll see in verse 14 when God incarnate, when the word became flesh, that Christ was the true light. And Christ brought life and he gives light to all men where everyone he exposes, makes it known. He's not talking here about universal salvation. He's not talking about general revelation. He's nor even kind of an inner illumination of humanity. But that Christ, when he came, he brought and light shone into the darkness. I love in Isaiah, Isaiah describes that the, the people were in a great darkness. And in this darkness, but they saw this great light. And so there's a picture of darkness. And you know, the reality is, it's one of the reasons why we struggle with God, isn't it? Like, why does God get so upset over this sin? And, you know, and why about this? Why is this a big deal? And so we, we in, our, in, our, in a darkness of our iniquity, we go, well, that's not so bad. 
And so we kind of justified, even though the scriptures begin to tell us that it's, that it's sin, we kind of start going, it's, it's okay. I've heard, I've heard dealing with college students sometimes where they'll go out, you know, I believe the Bible, in the Bible it's wrong, but I think it's okay. And that's relativism. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but that's relativism. It's when we begin to take and value the things through our own, our own selves and truth becomes what we think it is. And yet, in our darkness, we're blinded. We can't see holiness. We can't see truth. And the picture is that God's sending his son, revealing his son, and there was a great light. And when Christ shines into the darkness, what happens is he either exposes us and we understand it and we humble ourselves and we receive the gift of God, the gift of revelation that God has given us in his son, where we harden our hearts and we turn away. It's one or the other. In our culture, we're trying to make it, make it more plausible, you know, we're trying to make it not. But the reality is, here's the sun and the light of God is shining into the world and he's the true light, which enlightens everyone. And it goes on in verses 10 and 11, I think are two of the, probably the saddest verses in scriptures. At least it ranks in there. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. Jesus was the creator. Through him came, came that which is known into being. The world did not even recognize him, though it was created by him. Think about that. Did not even recognize him. Not because God's nature was some kind of, somehow hidden in Christ, but rather it was hidden in our darkness, in our own blindness, in our own iniquity. We looked away from the light. We turned from the light. I find it interesting, John says in chapter 12, verse 37, he says, though he, talking about Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. It's the hardness of hearts. It's, it's the unwillingness to recognize who he is. In their midst, Jesus did Many great signs. In fact, I find it interesting. I think we quoted it last week where, where Jesus asked them, they're picking up stones, they're about to stone him. He's like, well, which of these good works that I've done that you're gonna stone me? It's not because of, of good works, but because you being a man claim to be God. They understood what Jesus' claims were. He wasn't claiming to be a great teacher or a good moral leader in, our, in, in the world. He was claiming to be God, the son of God. And it's important to understand that. And he came to his own creation. His creation did not recognize him. In verse 11, it says he came to his own and his own people, the Jewish people, Israel. He came to them and they did not receive him. The Logos, the word of God, the God in flesh, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the one whom they had looked for. He went out among his people and his own people didn't recognize him. In fact, they rejected him. They refused to accept him as the revelation of God in the Son. They refused to obey him. They refused to listen to him. In fact, in Isaiah chapter one, God talking about Israel, chapter one, verses two and three, it says, hear, O Israel, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up 
but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And here's the reality, dear people of God. We, in our unbelief, in the hardness of our hearts, we're trying to make things fit what we know or understand within our experiences leads us away. It's rather that we come to the text and the word of God, the objective truth that we have, we read it and we understand that we are, the, are, are entering into truth because the truth is in the word of God. The truth is in the person of Jesus Christ, which the word describes. He walks into verses 12 and 13. It says in verse 12, but to all who did, did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's interesting here in verses four and five earlier, last week we looked at that and we talked about how light and darkness can't exist in the same space. There's a contrast between the two. There's a contrast between the light of who God is and darkness and the iniquity of our sins. There's a contrast, and it was a sharp contrast that was brought out in those verses. Well, the Apostle John now does kind of the same thing, except here the difference is the contrast of rejection, verses 10 and 11, to reception in verse 12. But as to many, as to those, what does he say? But to all who did receive him. And here he begins to equate receiving with believing. He says in verse who believe in his name. He begins to define belief as, as receiving and receiving, this idea of receiving and accepting the gift of God's grace. That we demonstrate our confidence in the reality of who Jesus is, the reality and the trustworthiness of God's revelation through his son, Jesus Christ. But as many as those who would receive him, who would believe on his name, to believe in the work that he has done, believe in what he has accomplished for us, that we would trust him and believe in him, then he gives life. It's kind of not this picture is that, that we make him our possession, that we receive him in our life, and he gives those who believe, he gives them life, a membership into his own family, the family of God. That's why I say we're the people of God. And the last part of that verse where it says, to become children of God. He's not implying that we become gods. That's not the implication. In fact, the word has a kind of an idea of born ones. It's not that we become gods, we're a nature of God, but it's that, that God has made us alive in his son. Chapter two of Ephesians, but God has made us alive. There's this picture, this beautiful word, he raised us up. Our rest is in who he is. It's because he gives life. You're not gonna find life anywhere else. You can go to the universities, you can go to the workshops, you can go to read all the books of the world, you can read everything, and it will not give you life. Life is found in Christ, it's found in this truth. Dear people of God, we need to know these things. In fact, in verse 13, a very powerful phrase here, there's a progression of thought in these clauses that he brings out where he's describing kind of a proper origin of a believer's new life. When he says who were born, those who received him who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, 
but of God. There's a progression here. And in fact, in some of the trends, I think it's the NIV says, nor of the will of the husband. It's a picture of of making that decision that somehow we as as humans will decide, oh, we're going to have children. Oh, I'm going to decide to have new life. Well, new life doesn't come that way. It's not a descent that is brought about by the human desire or power. It happens because of the work of God in his son, Jesus Christ. It's when we receive that and we humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. The birth of the child of God is not a natural birth. It is a supernatural birth where old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new because of the work of Christ in our lives. It's an understanding that when we receive Jesus and we respond to him in faith and in obedience, there's a mysterious work of the spirit in our lives that makes us new. Not that we have done, not that we have accomplished. Well, it's the very last words of the verse, the last three words, but of God. It's but of God, God alone. There's a, there's a growing thought in our culture that I believe is dangerous today, and it's very pervasive. It's the claim that all truths are personal and subjective. We know this in in the academic circles, we call that relativism. It's the idea that, that I determine what is truth for me personally. I can't tell you what is your truth, but I can tell you my truth. In fact, I heard it was interesting had the TV on this week and there was a commercial, I don't even remember what it was for, but it just really jumped out at me. It was, the comment was the person goes, I'm, li- I'm learning to live my truth. And I'm like, oh yeah, I know where you're gonna end up, right? You know, this, you cannot, you cannot find truth in yourself, dear people of God. We need to understand that. It's this idea that our, something that in spiritual relativism that we in the church if we're not aware of, that seeps in, and it's very subtle in the way that our adversary begins to deceive us. He lures us into believing. We begin to look at the truths of eternal realities of, of who God is from everlasting to everlasting. We look at the truths of what God has intended and what he's doing in, in our atonement, through the atonement work and our redemption and making us new. And we begin to look in it through a personal truth that we experience either within culture or in our lives. And we take those things and we begin to put those through that prism of of personal truth and, and our own understanding, our own way of thinking. And when we do that, we becomes very dangerous because we never land in truth. And the reality is our adversary, our adversary wants you to do that. He wants you to make it through your personal beliefs. When, when, when they say, well, I think biblically it's wrong, but I still think it's okay. What is that? It's relativism. It's not humbling ourselves under the truth of God's word. And the reality is, it's his word that gives us truth. That we begin to understand these things. I did it again this week. I spent some time on Progressive Christianity website because I do think we need to understand some of these things. I need to expose them. And I'm not trying to start combat, but I want you as God's people to understand truth. They had a quote, and the headline of the quote was, the Christian faith is our way of being faithful to God, but it's not the only way. I don't think they've read this chapter, but. Christianity is the truth for us, but it's not the only truth. 
And then listen to what they say. This principle stems from the reality of the 21st century. Did you understand when I just read that sentence? Did you catch it, dear people of God? You need to catch it. The reality of the 21st century determines truth, not the word of God. And I've heard this. I've heard this. I've watched people go down this line of thinking who somehow think we've regressed to a a level of intellectualism, to a level of understanding that somehow the scriptures really can't understand because we understand today. I've heard people go to the place where they say, well, the apostles, the writers didn't even know what they were writing. Well, I'm sorry. I believe the Holy Spirit of God directed them. So if you say that they didn't understand, then you're saying the Holy Spirit didn't understand because I believe this to be truth. And I'm not gonna define my faith and I'm not gonna define who Jesus is by what our culture, where the 21st century stems. We've got to understand that we are a unique people. We're a peculiar people because we are identified with the God Almighty. We are his people. When we say peculiar, we mean he alone. We serve him. And we, as God's people, need to realize that in our culture and our time. But we need to be able to spot this stuff. It goes on in the quote, we share our lives with people who are Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist. We experience these people as loving and caring by following their religious traditions. Is that true? I mean, I meet people all the time that don't believe. I've, I meet people who think I'm a crackpot. You know, they just think I'm out of my, out of my field. And, but they're good people. I mean, I see them. They, they go to work. They They treat people well. They do a lot of good in our world. But I want you to understand something this morning. I'm human. And I can go out these doors today and I can walk outside and I may fall. I may mess up as a believer in Jesus Christ. But I want you to understand one thing to be true. What I do in my life doesn't determine whether Jesus is God or not. Because he is God. And because I go out and if I all of a sudden went, hey, this is hogwash, it doesn't change that this is truth. God does not need me to affirm him to be God. Jesus doesn't need me to affirm. I meet a lot of good people who who I believe have missed the boat, if you will. But because they're good people doesn't mean what they believe is right. Because what we believe or don't believe isn't determined truth What's determined truth is God sent his son to this world, and we're going to look at it as an exact representation of himself. And that his son reveals him. And to get the truth about God from anywhere else is to be deceived. It says to deny that is to deny that God can only draw people with one way that simply isn't born, hear these words, out of our experience. I experience a lot of things in my life. There's a lot of things I experienced wrong. There's a lot of things that I've experienced that have been good. And the reality is, is the greatest thing that ever happened to me was to realize that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, his death, his burial, his resurrection, what he did through the atonement, that he, that he himself would be my sacrifice, my propitiation for my sins, and that he would reconcile me to God and redeem me from the bondage of sin and death. That has been the best thing that's ever happened. And I'm still learning about the powers of, the, of that reality in my life by experience. As I walk by faith, as I learn to follow Jesus. He goes on in the power of, of the Christian faith to transform lives, 
does not require it to be exclusively true. Well, I'm going to look at it. Let me just pause it. Let me move on. Exclusivity is born out of fear. Is fear a bad thing? Yeah. You know, I don't go play on the highway because I'm a little afraid of some cars that are running around down there. I don't go grab a knife and stick it in an electrical outlet because I'm afraid of a few things. Fear can be a positive thing. When in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 10 of Hebrews, because people were turning away and going back to Judaism, and throughout the book, as the apostle Paul was instructing, or the, I just revealed what I thought right there, the writer of the Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, right? As he's instructing them, and people are going back to Judaism, they're leaving, and he's saying there remains no more. If you return back and you reject there is no salvation for you. And then he says this in uh, verse 3 of chapter 10. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Dear people of God, there's a place for fear. Fear causes me from running my own way. Because I've learned about the iniquities of my life and how they destroy my life. And I find that bringing my life in the light of this word, of the, the scriptures and what God has taught us leads to joy and peace. The fear that there is one, they continue, the fear that there is one train to God, and if you aren't on the right train, you'll go to hell. We believe there are many trains, and God welcomes them all. And I just like, well, did you read this? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God? God is the one that said, Jesus said in chapter 14 of this, cha of this book, John chapter 14, verse 6, he said, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one come to the Father except through me. Is that pretty distinct? And in fact, when you look at it, the article's there. He's saying the way, the truth, the life. It's not a way, a life, a truth. It's not even kind of just put out there as many ways. When Jesus said that, he's saying there's no other way. No other way to the Father. There's no other name under heaven by which people can be saved. And it's important for us to understand these truths and not to be sucked into the relativism of our day. Do you hear that, people of God? Do you hear it? Please guard your hearts and do not be deceived. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen the glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen? You want to know grace? You want to know truth? There it is. Jesus didn't appear kind of like flesh or as kind of a, kind of a, uh, a ghost like some have said. He was fully God and fully man. He took to his deity humanity. And he was fully God and fully man. No one else like him. There's no one else that can be God and man. It says that he dwelt among us, recalling, recalling for the Jewish mind of, with Israel when God was dwelling in the tabernacle and they would put the tabernacle in the center of the camp and he would be in their midst. And now here Jesus came and he dwelt among us. He was unique for he is the eternal God and is of the same essence as the Father. The glorious revelation of God in the God-man. 
displayed the full of grace, displayed full of grace and truth. That the revelation that Jesus brought was, was gracious and truthful. Think about that. In verse 16, he says, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus is the source of grace. The sum total of all the spiritual favors we have received from God is because of Christ. I stand here today in the righteousness of Christ because of Christ. In fact, that term there, grace upon grace, it's kind of like when the waves are coming in, maybe from the ocean, and they just, they just keep coming, and they keep humming, and they keep coming. It's a picture of grace just keeps flowing and flowing. There's never, there's never an end to grace. It just keeps coming. Recognizing the grace of God in our lives. I don't know what you've done in your life, but man, there's enough grace. There's enough forgiveness from God. God is able to restore. God is able to renew. God is able to redeem. There's more than enough grace. And then you begin to recognize the grace of God in your daily life for the simple things. I've changed the way I pray over food. I don't just go, God bless this food to the nourishment of our body. You know, God, thank you. This food right here, it's an example of your grace towards me. And the way that you provide, the clothes I wear, the, the vehicles I drive, the home I live in, it's a, it's a grace of God that he has bestowed. His goodness to me is unreal. Verse 17, he says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. As this picture of, of the nation of Israel was unique in that, that they were called out and they were given something no other nation was given. They were given the law. They were to be a light to the rest of the nations and, 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 and carrying the law of God. But in the, in the church now, he says, hey, we have Christ. We have truth and we have grace. We have this, this, this message that we have. It's found in the revelation of Jesus Christ that, the re that he reveals God's grace, he reveals God's truth, and that's the glory of the church, that as we proclaim that truth, he is glorified. Verse 18, at eight, verse 18 is a powerful verse. No one has ever seen God. I know in the Old Testament there's some verses where it talks about like they saw or the backside, but the picture is here what John is saying is the essence of who God is. No one has ever seen that. We couldn't stand in the presence of the essence of God just because of our own iniquity. But because of what Christ is doing, he is revealing the Father and the message of God. He says the only God who is at the Father's side, this picture is that he not only was the essence of who God is and he's understood that, but now he had this close intimacy with God. We saw it in verse two of, of chapter one when it says, and the beginning was the word and the word was what? with God, right? There was an intimacy between the Father and the Son. And then he says these last, last five words to this verse. He has made him known. If there was ever anything that ever struck to me than these five words in this passage, the reality that truth only comes through Christ, the truth of, of what God has done comes through Christ. It doesn't come through us or anybody else. That word there, known, is a, is a, is a neat word that the Son has made known the Father. We get our word exegeted from this word, or to exegete. The Son is the exegete of the Father. As a result of the Son's work, the, na the nature of the visible Father 
is displayed in the sun. In other words, to see the sun is to see. We get our word exegesis from this. If you're familiar, some of you are in Bible study methods. It's kind of the idea of, of critical explanation of, of a, of a, of a, or an interpretation of a text. And most of the time it's used within regards to the scriptures. It simply means, it simply is the process of discovering the original and intended meaning of a passage of scripture. So for us, when considering the importance of knowing truth, exegetical theology is really important for us. It's vitally important for us. What do we mean by that? So the picture is, is this morning, well, one of the attempts that I do, that's why I always pray, God, please go past all my shortcomings, my own iniquities, because I don't want to be blinded. I don't want to be putting my, my preconceived ideas into the text. And so when you study the text, you're studying it to see what does it say. You're taking it out because what the text says is what's important, not what I think about the text. And so we call that exegesis where we're taking the text and we're allowing the text to instruct us. If I start putting my ideas into the text, that's not exegesis. That's not, that's not ex, uh, exegetical teaching. If I just came up here and told you a bunch of stories and didn't refer to the text. So it's important that we do that because we're trying to find the meaning and the understanding of the text. Well, if we want to understand the meaning and the, uh, of who God is, if we want to understand who he is, if we want to understand his character, his nature, well, we see that in the Son because he has made him known. He has exegeted God. In other words, he's made him known. He explains the Father. He reveals the Father. Nobody else. It isn't a self-discovery that I go through to, to kind of come to this place of new life. It's the Son that gives the life. Well, how do I know that? Because the Son reveals the Father. Jesus says throughout this book, when, when Paul, John, Apostle John writes this book, what I see the Father say, I say. What I hear the Father do, or see the Father do, I do. What I hear the Father say, I say. And he constantly says that. Because he's revealing the Father, he, this message of life, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Son of God, and that by believing in, in him, you might have life in his name. The process of doing that is understanding the reality, the revelation of the Son. It's not putting the prison, through the prism of truth, my own truth, but it's humbly coming before the Father, hearing his words, and submitting myself to him, humbling myself before him. You see, the God that redeems is God. We saw that last week. But also, the God who redeems has revealed himself perfectly in the Son. And that what he teaches us and what he tells us is truth. And we bring ourselves in line with him. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, um, I just pray this morning that as we've spent this time and as we work through your word, that, Father, you would just speak to us, your people. I pray that every week, Lord. I, I pray leading up to these services. I pray, God, that you would, just, you would just do a mighty work. You would speak in a way that, Father, your spirit would enlighten and that we would grow in truth, that we would learn how to follow Christ. Father, I want to just pray over, over your people even now. Guard our hearts against relativism from kind of making truth that we determine. God, it's so easy. It's so easy to 
sometimes look at things that in scripture, and maybe it's hard to understand or things about you, I just don't, under, I don't understand. And instead of yielding myself and being obedient and humbling myself, I try to make you fit in what I've understood in my experiences. God forbid that we do that. May we, Father, embrace who the person of Jesus Christ is. May we embrace the message of, and your purpose of sending your son, Jesus Christ. Even as it tells us in Romans that you demonstrated your love towards us. And that while we were still in our iniquities, while we were still in our sins, Christ came. He died for us. Lord, may we understand the realities and the power of that. May you constantly be teaching us, Father, in our walks with you as we would yield ourselves and submit ourselves to you and receive Christ into our lives. To you be the glory and the praise forever. Amen.